Greetings and peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with David Ebbevi, who is a medical doctor specializing in pediatrics and a researcher at the House of Innovation at the Stockholm School of Economics, where he's involved in a project called The Art of Ignoring. On this podcast, I've often asked this question to guests in their role as individuals, but just since you're an organizational scientist, as it were, I'll ask you this question from an, um, from an organizational angle. So can you pinpoint any variable that you, you think that we ought to maximize without any sort of cap? Um, this is a great question. I thought a lot about it. I think that the, I don't know if there's such a big difference between the uh, variables that you'd want to optimize for humanity or for individuals, uh, as opposed to for organizations, because in a sense, organizations are intended as an extension of um, of the human activity. It's sort of the, so the goal of an organization would be to create an environment or a, uh, an entity where uh, individuals that enables individuals to act in a way that they wouldn't act uh, without it. And then, of course, the, the popular answer is to optimize for well-being, uh, which I think is from uh, Sam Harris. Uh, and I really, um, I think it, it's quite reasonable, but, but there's also a problem with finding sort of uh, outcomes to optimize for without any cap, because it's very uh, shaped by the current zeitgeist uh, uh, or current spirit of the times. So I guess if you would have asked the question in to me in the Middle Ages, I would have said, oh, we need to optimize for chivalry. If you'd asked me this um, uh, at, um, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago in, in uh, China, I might have said that we, uh, we need to optimize for sort of acceptance of the current conditions. Or if you'd asked me this during the, <laughs> the 30s in Germany, I might have uh, answer that we need to optimize for the purity of the human race mm. uh, and it's sort of easy to to be blinded by oh, we are so affected by the current times so it's very difficult to to give a good good answer uh, however if try to not think too much about that and give a sort of reasonable answer informed by the by the current time that i'm living in i think it would be sort of to optimize for the rational capacity as informed by uh, emotions. So in a sense, uh, this, um, it, uh, I, I think this because it sort of tries to circumvent the problem of uh, us being so dependent on the current times. Right. Because in a sense, the, all, these, all these answers that different time, different ages would have provided to the question uh, comes from the the rational capacity or the ability to reason. So then it, the answer is sort of meta uh, in that sense. However, of course, it's very, very hip in the current times to think of rationality and to uh, sort of view rationality as the ideal answer. Uh, but I think that the the answer, no matter where you end up with the answer, it has to have something to do with sort of matching our brain structure with the current time that we're living in. So in a sense, as we're trying to understand and navigate and manipulate uh, the world to our benefit, uh, our knowledge creation, I would say to a great extent, sort of 
have the aim of matching our brain structure, the neuro, neuronal structure, to the empirical experience of of being in this in this world. But then one could say that oh, then then uh, the sort of uh, Eastern answer of acceptance is just a good answer because if you just if you just don't care about progression and the betterment of humans, you can just accept the current uh, state and you'd be satisfied with with the <laughs> with the way that we already uh, that we're already structured. Um, and uh, to some extent, that's also a fair answer, which highlights the bias of where I'm coming from. So uh, I'm not really giving you an answer to the question. I'm just sort of um, um, creating a sketch of the surroundings of the yeah. of the answer, in a sense. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. But if I just could, could clarify one thing, when you mean rationality, mm -hmm. do you do you refer, uh, rationality based on which uh, which set of axioms you know is there any explicit explicitly defined set that you're thinking thinking about or is it just um the implicit uh, in, implicit um calls, uh, like um set of axioms like some has contract as you call it sometimes mm -hmm. that you're talking that you're so uh, my question is do you think it should be explicitly defined the the, the base of that rational 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 way of thinking uh, yeah so here's the thing and this is maybe this is the reason why the the answer is not very informative so the the view of rationality is of course shaped by uh, our current understanding of what we can do i think that uh, for example prior to the um, uh, the work of Gödel, uh, it would be much easier to say that we need to have a sort of set of axioms that enables us to uh, sort of uh, con um, defer everything else or uh, make us make uh, assessment in every other situation but i think that it's it's mm, it, we don't know enough in order to define what i mean by rationality so then then it's um then it's uh, yeah so maybe maybe if i'd had to choose between the two options i'd say in the broader sense of the, the of the meaning of rationality so the sort of communicative uh, rationality where it's uh, people are uh, individuals are testing and critiquing each other's ideas maybe mm. uh. yeah yeah so so some kind of an implicit set of axioms that wouldn't be wouldn't be um yeah that's that's uh, there are some problems with that view you mentioned mm -hmm. Gödel, and then you know then one comes to think about the fact that no set of axioms would be would be completely sufficient for all of our decisions but then yeah that's mm. different different uh, story um but anyhow this ties into into the next question that i had in mind and that's uh, that's uh, more um um for your for, for your side as a physician so in your in your um, work i i think you i would think you have to make many decisions and ultimately you will you would make them by reasoning from first principles every time based on this implicit set of axioms but most often you i don't know if you agree but i have felt that most often you can't deduce everything step by step in every single situation sometimes you have to just make decisions spontaneously and um so i wanted to ask you about you know do you think do you how, to which extent do you like do you think that you can trust your subconscious uh, when making spontaneous decisions and, and to which extent do you think that you have to you know bring the ideas up to the surface and you know try to explicitly you know entangle you know see every angle of them and stuff 
Mm. Um, I, I have some um, uh, marks about the terminology of first principles. Uh, we can maybe we can talk about it later, but I'm, I'll try to first answer the question. The, so I think that to some extent there is great value to uh, try to understand the underlying principles or the the mechanisms. And uh, the I think that the best physicians that I know have the fact in common that they are able to reason from uh, knowledge about mechanisms and and can thus uh, make a rational sort of assessment of uh, situations that they have not encountered before. Uh, however, uh, as complexity increases in a knowledge domain, and I think this is true, certainly true for medicine uh, due to the many mechanisms at play in the body, but also for organizations uh, where the sort of the the regularity is uh, not as pronounced as for, I guess, uh, humans are individually different, but they're also similar to some extent being the same species, but organizations can be, um, can be very different and are better compared or seen as uh, different sort of animals. So it's more the work being an organizational scientist, more the work of, of veterinarian medicine. But okay, so the, the point of um, the increasing complexity makes it to difficult with to within reasonable time sort of or to assess the situation with uh, within reasonable time using first principles and uh, and then into intuition plays a very important part i uh, i remember one time when, when i was doing my my training to become a doctor and i was uh, assisting a surgeon at a uh, at a, a, what is called an open laparotomy which is the uh, sort of the, the patient is experiencing pain in the stomach and you have no idea what it's about and you don't have any time to do any uh, further examinations, x-rays or barely blood tests because the critical the condition is so critical of the patient. So what you do is that you just uh, go directly to the surgical theater and you uh, open the stomach and try to see if you can fix it right away. And then he was, so we were operating and he was sort of looking out and then he was like, and he was saying, oh, I feel like there's something fishy about this. It, it feels as though it could be uh, aortic duodenal uh, fistulation, and this is a very, rare, uh, very, very rare condition of sort of a communication between the greatest vessel in the body and the small intestine. So the blood is sort of pumping from the vessels into the into the intestine, and of course the patient loses a lot of blood. And I've never seen this before or since, so it's super rare. Uh, and it turned out to be the case. That it was uh, that he aimed the diagnosis, and then I asked him afterwards, so like, how could you know? Can you teach me how you knew this? And then he he, he couldn't explain um, uh, what the sort of idea or intuition came from. And this has also been replicated in studies. It's uh, the most sort of the best kind of care uh, by a doctor is is the kind of care where the doctor has 50 years of experience and sort of uh, feels uh, try to assess the 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 situation using his intuition and then acts on that but then of course if you don't have that, that kind of experience the most uh, uh, the best care is to follow protocols and guidelines and evidence etc but but i think as as complexity of the subject increases intuition plays a much larger part which is of course the case also in machine learning and the recent advances in artificial intelligence where the, the mathematical models are are structured in a way that's much closer to how human intuition would work, or at least modeled on that part of the of mm -hmm. the brain. Right. So, 
you, you mentioned that you had some problem with the term first principle. So could you uh, expand on that? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 um, I think that the, the person that has popularized this, I guess it's Elon Musk and his most sort of famous example is the, I would say the, um, the when he talks about production of batteries for the Tesla Mm -hmm. uh, factory and he says that they were very expensive but then he realized that all the raw materials could be bought at a much cheaper price uh, so um, the sort of uh, the idea being that i can produce batteries cheaper by just using the raw materials uh, and the problem uh, with calling this sort of the first principle is that it's not really the first principle but rather of course all the elements the raw materials are atoms and if you had like a atom collider you could smash them together and produce new elements like being using elementary particles so there are uh, there are sort of firster uh, principles uh, that are uh, there are other principles that are actually the first principle uh, but they are highly impractical so I would say that what you're doing when you talk about first principles, rather you're doing sort of a gradient uh, descent or ascent from each uh, principle level. So you're like, you're reasoning at one level and then you try to, can I go to a more basic level? And then you continue to do this until you end up at a level where at the sort of an optimal level or a local uh, minima, I would guess, yeah. or maxima. Um, and so, so in a sense, it's not really the first principle, but rather the sort of, firstest reasonable principle right. so that's my notes on the on the terminology but i think that sort of the way of thinking is 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 great right um, right so so if you take this set the set of the firstest reasonable principles that that most you know physicians are um basing their decisions on um how i and you know i i i would think that many of those principles are are not explicitly defined. Some are implicitly defined. So there are some 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 principles that are very hard to define linguistically. You know, every time you try, you'll always get into some some situation. You always come up with some situation where that principle doesn't hold up. So um, if so, hypothetically, if um, the, these principles were to be defined explicitly, how many? How which percentage of the physicians, do you think, would agree with this after them being explicitly defined? Well, I think that the uh, with time, the physicians are generally pretty good at, at achieving consensus. So if they are really vetted, I think that 80 or maybe 70 percent would be able to agree with them. But um, I think the problem is also that there are when you're doing medicine, sort of your your actions are intended to achieve a certain outcome and it's much much easier to disagree on the outcome than to disagree on sort of the first principles of the physiology of the human body right. um, so there because there i think i think that the physicians would weight uh, equality or pain or uh, functional level or ability to have children all these kind of things i think it would give them different weights in a sense right. um right so and that would affect of course the structure of uh maybe not yeah yeah i think it would affect the the structure of how how you'd structure the, the principles uh, in terms of the physiology mm. um, because it's um if you're if you're structuring them with the intention of sort of changing or or uh, curing or easing the the life of the the humans mm. Um, mm. often i i I notice this that sometimes or many times I make decisions or 
or I, I, I conduct, uh, I have a code of conduct sometimes in some situations um, that isn't aligned with my, my explicit, uh, with my principles, you know, mm. basically. And um, I, I guess this is the case for, for many people in, in some, in certain situations. What do you think that this is, is due to? Do you think it's a, that limited computing power in the brain is the bottleneck or do you think it's, it's that the explicitly defined or my, my principles are not actually my principles or yeah. What do you think it's due to? I think that there are uh, many different parts of your brain and at different times, different parts can be in control and they try to the sort of the brain struggles to minimize the, the different perceptions of the some parts of the brain. And this was called the cognitive dissonance phenomena where we sort of invent things to to sort of bring different perspectives uh, uh, into alignment um, but I uh, so there there are different uh, sort of um, functions to these different parts of the brain and then uh, depending on what you want to achieve they can be uh, more or less uh, appropriate so in terms of of rationality or the the principles they are great at sort of understanding and in the long term I think finding structures for achieving a certain result. However, they are not very good at mobilizing action. Uh, rather, the opposite is true that uh, irrationality is great at mobilizing action. So if you want to be a very inspiring leader, you should uh, <laughs> unfortunately aspire to be uh, less rational or you should appeal more to emotions. And this is not done by by the, the sort of rational tools, statistics, or uh, careful, uh, boring analysis, but rather stories of one single case or um, personal developmental uh, ideas, sort of. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that at least in terms of, of organizations and leading uh, people, but also leading yourself, rationality has a, uh, an important uh, part to play or at least it's an important uh, i mean irrationality has an important part to to play right. in, in mobilizing uh, people um so it, um and then in addition i think that the a way to structure sort of human uh, a helpful way to structure human behavior is uh, to divide uh, the sort of drivers of behavior into uh, information motivation and uh, structural sort of possibility so in order to uh, quit uh, smoking, you need to have uh, the sort of beneficial conditions in uh, information and motivation. You need to know that it's uh, uh, dangerous and you need to be motivated to do it and you need to have the structural sort of support system. That is, you need to be in an environment that supports it. So even if you're, you know that smoking is dangerous and you're very motivated to stop smoking, if you're in an environment where your friend will constantly put a cigarette in your mouth, it, it might not be possible to, to quit smoking. Um, yeah. Right. So, so it seems that you think that um, one's emotions and one's emotional sense of well-being is independent from one's, you know, rational sense of of righteousness. And in the first, in the reply to the first question, you mentioned that if I would ask you this question in, in the medieval times, you would say that the variable that you want to maximize is chivalry. So, do you think that that uh, that that goal of maximizing chivalry? would would be due to you know the emotional the differences in emotions or do you think that it's the same common denominator uh, that there is some common denominator in the goal that we have today and the goal that we had in the medieval times and that you know it's the same variable that we are trying to maximize but with different you know with different um, means 
I think I think there are certainly uh, satisfying. Uh, there could be satisfying answers to the, the question. Maybe one way to view the sort of fine, if you look for a, a variable that we're, we're minimizing, maybe it would be to minimize the uh, sort of um, uh, information divergence between the state of the brain and the, the current environment. But then, uh, uh, so that that means in a sense that we're um, reinforcing uh, current uh, um, current structures in the brain and also current structures in the um, in society, yeah, I, I don't. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think my, my cognitive capacity is is uh, um, enough to sort of weigh all the um, all the different uh, optimizations performed through the ages into one uh, major model. Right. But I, I believe that it could be done, uh, or I don't see any any reason, any mechanism, or any reason for why it uh, uh, it wouldn't be sort of. I wouldn't be able to find a satisfactory answer to the to the question. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so moving on. I, I uh, as far as I've understood, you're quite into tech as well, and um, and uh, so I wanted to and I asked this question to a previous guest as well, and he was a mathematician, um, but I want to get a physician's view on this. So, in 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 the healthcare setting, how would you rank the potential of the following? technologies. So natural language processing is the first one. Um, identifying a biomarker for well-being is the second one. And inventing a device which can transfer emotions is the third one. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I, th I think that the at least the first and the second, the national language processing and the emotional compatibility is are important areas. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I think in, in terms of natural natural language processing, I think that the, the great potential for that would be if uh, it could be used to sort of um, adjust uh, a certain message uh, or a thought to the recipient with a greater accuracy. So as we're talking now, it's um, uh, you have a certain neuronal structure and by using words that I believe that we have in common, I'm trying to sort of transfer my thought into your brain and ideally I'd want you to have the same thought uh, as I'm having before I, I start to speak. Um, but in order to do this with high accuracy, I would uh, need to take into account um, either the neuronal structure of your brain and my neuronal structure. Um, as would maybe be the case with the last, uh, your last example of, a, of an apparatus transferring emotions. But if we're using language as a bridge, maybe the sort of the general structure of how you've been speaking throughout your life could approximate the, uh, how your thoughts relate to how you perceive words. So I think maybe uh, natural language processing could uh, help with this uh, incredibly this would be incredibly computationally intensive, of course, in just conveying one thought and then taking uh, everything you've ever said into consideration and everything I've ever said into consideration. Uh, I think that it would have great potential for the scientific discussion. Uh, of course, there's also some horrifying ramifications of this uh, uh, in how it would enable to it would enable some evil uh, sort of uh, dictator to control uh, people's minds. Um, 
because I think that has some potential. And then in terms of the emotional apparatus, emotional translation apparatus, I think that it's um, a great problem in communication is, is sort of the lack of uh, emotional interoperability. That is the, the sort of the, the way that emotions are configured in our brains uh, differ in a way that the same uh, words don't con convey the same emotions and the same situations don't con convey the same emotions. Um, uh, and then the, the factor about biomarker, I don't think there is such a, uh, a marker because the uh, sort of well-being, I guess the, the reducible, the, the least reducible part of, of well-being would be uh, the consciousness of human beings and uh, and it's as, as far as we know it's probably distributed in in um, at least at least more than one neuron so so it's um, it, I think it would be difficult to to select one biomarker uh, however of course maybe a sort of complex model of several biomarkers could approximate well-being so if I had to rank them I'd say uh, at top, emotional sort of uh, transfer. reducing, yeah, emotional transfer uh, with the idea that it's much better at creating understanding and mobilizing action. And then on second place, natural language processing, and then uh, biomarkers will have to go at the bottom. Right. So you mentioned that you the consciousness is very consciousness is very uh, complex and that it's distributed over more than one neuron. Um, so I just wanted to ask you this, do you think that even if we would understand like the mechanism of every part of the brain, do you think that that would unlock the mystery of consciousness? Do you think it's a materialistic question in, in, uh, at its heart? Wow. I, um, yeah, so the, I guess the correct answer is that I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if I had to guess, I, I don't, okay. So I, I, I see that it can be a, a in a sense, it can be in one of two ways, and this is the classical sort of divide of is consciousness first or is the material reality first, uh, realism versus idealism. So either the um, either consciousness or a network of consciousnesses in in uh, the world creates the uh, experiences that we're having, and then it might not be uh, reasonable to deduce that from the from the necessarily at least from the structure of the of the human brain. Um, but I, I think that if we, at least, at least it seems obvious that the consciousness state correlates with a specific configuration of, of activity maybe, or structure and activity in the, in the human brain. So uh, then at least, um, I, I think at least we would arrive at an answer that satisfies some people, maybe the materialists, but if we're able to understand exactly how each sort of state correlates with the, um, uh, each material state correlates with the consciousness state, um, the, I think at least a few people would say that there's nothing more to discover, sort of, if we know all that, those conditions. And uh, any additional theory on top of that would be metaphysics or speculation, in a sense. Uh, right. Yeah. So, now we've spoken a lot about, you know, the basic stuff, basic, you know, uh, naive, uh, naive philosophy and uh, yeah, we just uh, come back and forth a bit, but now we can get into your um, expertise. So could you explain a bit about your new research project at the Second School of Economics? 
Yes. So we're doing a project where we uh, try to look at why uh, humans ignore information and knowledge. So there's a lot of research about uh, how organizations develop knowledge and how how sort of data is transformed into action in a sense uh, with the assumption that uh, humans want to uh, achieve something and make a change and and do something with the data that they discover however of course humans are also comfortable in uh, their current situation so i think that there's a, a niche of human behavior that don't really don't really want to know in a sense that would rather ignore uh, new information that are much more interested in uh, preserving the current system and certainly these factors are at play in in institutions and in smaller organizations it's much more important to some extent to preserve the existence of the organization than to achieve the uh, the purpose of the the organization Mm -hmm. yes. So we're looking at, at factors, uh, the sort of the mechanisms and the factors that uh, facilitate and create this kind of, of um, uh, behavior in, in organizations, mm -hmm. the, the lack of knowledge development in a sense. Right, so could you give some concrete examples of ignored problems in, for example, the healthcare sector, it could be any sector, and do you think mm -hmm. that the guilt should be placed on top down or, or bottom up factors? Uh, I, I think that um, maybe maybe the famous Macchiarini case is a great example of the of ignoring in healthcare, where the uh, the warning signs were very uh, manifest and obvious. Uh, I would say quite early on, but but the it seemed like other factors uh, played a greater role than than the, doing something about the. The problem of, of Macarini. And then I think there's also uh, a lot of data collection in, in healthcare that's not really used. I've studied quality registry quite extensively, uh, which is sort of a structured data collection in, in healthcare. And this information is sometimes uh, very well used, but it's also a lot of the times just collected and, and ignored. And of course, that's fine if, if the information is not informative, it's okay to, to ignore it. But, but then it would be reasonable to think that maybe you should stop collecting the information if you're just going to ignore it because it's resource intensive to collect information. Uh, uh, yes. And then the second part of your question was... Uh, uh, you know, is it due to top-down or bottom-up factors? Oh, yeah, right. Okay. so. Um, assigning, I think assigning uh, causes is you have to remember. Uh, one have to remember that it's it's always sort of a, a political or a social activity. So so in a sense, when you're saying that something caused was caused by something, you're uh, doing it, or you could be affected by by uh, factors such as power or uh, influence or social uh, pressures so um, because it really the, a lot of factors and a lot of mechanisms are intertwined and um, most often when people single out one factor saying that it was the government that made this uh, uh, reform a catastrophe uh, it's usually an uh, exercise it's usually exercising power because 
It could mm. also be that sort of civil servants activity that caused it to fail, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think that in terms of the solution, I think it's much more fruitful to think of it as a top-down problem in the sense mm. that we'd want to create the structure and an organizational climate that uh, minimizes ignoring and that creates uh, uh, fruitful um, organizations. Um, but in terms of the causes, of course, it's the bottom-up factors interacting with the, with the structure. As I was saying, the thing with the like information and motivation and the structural factors. So hmm. a lot of yeah. So the, the the point that you brought up before about about the data connection and the ignoring of of the data that comes in, um, this that that point pertains to the um, to the question of of how much. Or where's the balance in you know uh, letting our brains uh, use, using our brains uh, computing power for for analyzing or or acting on data and using computers? Do you think the balance is there right now? Do you think it could be a balance or a uh, or some problem in regards to that balance that is that is uh, giving rise to this phenomena? The balance between between you know letting computers compute and analyze. The, date, the raw data uh, and letting humans. And letting humans. Uh, I think that computers as analysts are an underutilized source, especially in healthcare organizations, which is the field that I know I'm most familiar with, but, but also in terms of other organizations and, and uh, the political activities. Um, I think that there is an irrational uh, trust placed in humans uh, to, when humans do analysis, that's uh, uh, hurtful to the outcome of, of uh, several organizations. So most often it would be better to uh, use computational analysis more, especially now with the very obvious um, ability of NLP and the GPT-3 to uh, sort of uh, um, categorize and summarize a lot of, uh, of uh, information. So I think mm -hmm. that we're not quite at a point where we can exclude humans uh, from the analysis yet, but uh, but I think computers are underutilized. How do you think that we should manage the the human and computer interactions? Uh, because you know, some uh, a counter argument would be, and I spoke to Thomas Bookstrom uh, before on this podcast, mm -hmm. and he mentioned that. He, he thinks that, that the or the debates are too much in favor of the computerized and the quantification side of things. And he thinks that, mm. or, you know, the, the one problem is that, you know, computers don't, they can't um, take into account variables that haven't been explicitly, explicitly defined. It's very hard to define every single variable. Humans can do that, not perfectly either, but to a greater extent. And there are some other problems as well. How do you think that we should like implement the, the the computerized side of things in healthcare. Mm. Um, okay, so, so I think in, in terms of um, of the sort of structure uh, structured algorithms that are rule based and everything is predetermined, then I think that it that humans have a very important part to play, and maybe they are um, under focused in the human um, machine interaction field, but uh, but in terms of of the newer models and the ability to analyze more complex data where the rules are not specified, I think that there is certainly more 
power to be drawn from the computational ability. Uh, but then in healthcare, the information uh, processing problems are much more are at a much more basic level than than um, in um, maybe the private sector, but but uh, also partly other parts of the public sector. Uh, it, the need for information process, processing is basically down to sort of a, a reasonable uh, structured way of conveying information and the reduction of double documentation and the um, very sort of 90s kind of uh, user interface uh, mm. needs. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, moving on to the more organization, uh, organizational side of things again, um, in what ways, if at all, would you say that the problems of allopathic medicine have taken forms in organizations? And just to give you some context, I, uh, in episode six, I, uh, I'll speak with them. Um, Mats Lekander, and uh, he, he's a quite well-known professor, and he, he and many others, Jens Fust as well, who was in episode two, they have mentioned that, you know, the, the power of, and you know as well, because you're a doctor, that the power of placebo and, and uh, you know, the power of placebo is very, very underestimated in, in, in among some people, and it's, it's not very, and it's quite obvious that allopathic medicine isn't perfect. It's maybe the best that we've got, but it's not perfect. So how how do you think that think that the problems of allopathic medicine have, have you know creeped into the organizational side of things? Um, yeah. So there are certainly some factors that are are considered um, um, that are not considered to be part of medicine uh, that could be part of medicine uh, that um, is categorized that way due to the sort of divide between alternative and allopathic medicine but i uh, i think that the sort of greatest problem with our current uh, medicinal structure and its impact on organizations is is the fact that the um, medicine is structured in into sub sort of sub disciplines uh, because that's how the knowledge is created because it's so complex. So the the mechanisms and the RCTs, if you will, are uh, created in sort of silos, and this is uh, mirrored on the structure of the organization. So uh, healthcare has a lot of siloed thinking in a way that it's it sort of structure tries to structure uh, patients into one uh, single category and this is fine for uh, young people that very often have one disease but then as you get older it's rather the case that you often have five or three or eight diseases and maybe 11 different medications uh, and uh, then the siloed sort of structure be really becomes a, a problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I think that most of the problems of the healthcare in healthcare organizations are rather uh, cultural that are not directly tied to the the structure the null the sort of epistemic structure of our right. medicine, uh, but rather they are tied to the history of how things uh, developed and how it sort of grew into being. Right. So in in this context, uh, the Hegelian dialectic very often pops up in my mind, and I, uh, I you know, this is just a hypothesis. But mm -hmm. you know, there is. Do you think that there could be any 
any resistance um, in organizations, uh, resistance against against um, letting things get too good, um, because yeah. you know uh, we think it could, there could be some subconscious hard limiter optimizing for, for example, long term um, long term uh, benefit that we don't identify and that that puts a a hard limiter on on uh, against it getting too good or some something on along that, those lines. Mm. The, uh, sort of a self-destructive. Uh, do you mean in the sense of a self-destructive uh, uh, character trait of, of humans? Be, or? It could be self-destructive, or it could be um, that your subconscious brain has identified that okay, we shouldn't let it get too good right now because this is maybe uh, maybe for the long term it's better if we if we just let it, because for example, people say that okay, don't get too comfortable. And you know, um, in some countries, uh, you know, there's a saying that you should uh, eat lentils because if the war breaks out, you you should be you know used to eating lentils and stuff like that. If you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I I, mm, I I certainly think that it's it's um, maybe maybe the the problem is rather in terms of organization. The problem is rather the sort of. Uh, uh, this is called the principal agent problem and it, it's sort of the idea that the organization or the director of the organization have one goal and then the person who's performing the actions have may have another goal right um, and i think that rather uh, people the sort of inefficiencies of organizations are driven by by this sort of divergence so maybe um, people are considering at least in terms of ignoring people are considering uh, how it, uh, how it, how it, what what would be the most comfortable thing for them in a sense? Uh, so uh, of course this is not uh, a full description of human behavior, but at least this aspect, there is this aspect in the sense when when people are asked to do something that they are considering uh, to what extent will this help me watch more Netflix, and then uh, the sort of the comfortableness of the of the humans um, is at odds with the with the development of the organization um, mm. 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 yeah and um so this also ties into you know medical doctors are quite often engaged in politics and um uh, you know at least here in sweden on, on a regional level and uh, also in academia and in the corporate sector and uh, you know, I was I heard about this um, trend uh, a few years ago that, for example, McKinsey they had some seminars with medical doctors, and uh, and you know there's there's some controversy you know after the the um, after a few incidents uh, in regards to, for example, building uh, the new uh, hospital, mm -hmm. the new uh, Karolinska hospital uh, around management consulting firms. But do you think that mm -hmm. doctors have a place in management consulting? I do. Uh, this is. Um, I think that it's sort of. Um, it's a very difficult uh, fusion in a sense. But I think that um, uh, the medical profession is not uh, sufficiently knowledgeable about organizational constructions, and they are, um, to an extent, uh, conservative in terms of of organizational. Uh, structure and I think that the the place of management consultant could be to sort of bring um, bring knowledge from other industries 
uh, were applicable into healthcare. A lot of the a lot of organizational knowledge is industry specific, and the complexity of medicine makes it difficult to apply uh, a lot of methods that are great in other in other sectors. Um, but I, I think that we, when doctors are left on their own, the the sort of lack of uh, quality development or or process uh, improvement is very prevalent uh, because we're not trained in that kind of expertise. The, uh, the new medical degree program in, in Sweden emphasizes the importance of, of quality development a little bit more than uh, the old one, but, but it's really a separate knowledge base. Uh, but then I think, of course, what we need is, is in a sense, senior doctors working with organizational developments uh, and uh, um, maybe together um, interprofessionally with uh, economists and stuff like that. And this can, it doesn't have to be management consultancy firms. Uh, maybe it would be more beneficial if this was uh, uh, performed by sort of units at the county council or mm. national level uh, where the economic incentive is not as as prevalent right uh, but but in in case of the competence of the management consultancy firms i think that there we do have something to learn from them then of mm. course um, the it's um, it really uh, the outcome of the of the new hospital uh, was really not to the favor of of the population or the public health mm. um, and that reform was ill implemented and performed uh, <laughs> obviously um but i still think i don't think uh, yeah i still think that they can can teach us uh, a lot about organizations mm. so you mentioned that the complexity of medicine is makes it hard for people to get into you know, these um, to these management skills and um, so and you also studied medicine so how did you counter that and how did you get into all of this organizational research yeah i i think that it's um um when you're uh, when you come from the medical field it's not uh, the sort of jump to organizational research is not that uh, far actually because it's as I was saying, the, comparing it to veterinary medicine, it's it's it has sort of the same mechanisms of loops that are self-reinforcing, um, phenomenon that are buffering other sort of activities and stabilizing the system because they are both sort of complex systems and both the body and an organization could be understood in terms of complexity theory and mm. uh, uh, chaos theory. So. Uh, I, I think that they are quite similar. Uh, similar, however, the of course the research methodologies are a little bit different because you're when you're doing research on the body, you're much bigger than the body, so you can uh, or the, the same size maybe <laughs> if if you're I'm working with children, but if you're working with with um, other grown-ups, it, it's you can easily expose them to different treatments. But then if you're researching organizations, you're sort of a small actors, so it's more of uh, in a sense of uh, being a cell inside the body trying to understand the rest of the body or researching the body if you were mm -hmm. one one cell traveling around inside the body uh, but the phenomena or the the type of mechanisms are, are the same but you said that medical the complexity of medicine makes uh -huh. it hard what, what do you mean uh, uh, by that 
Vad säger du där? Uh, okay. So I think um, mm, so whenever you're buying, if you're buying your uh, if you're buying your coffee at a local sort of coffee shop, the process is highly efficient, and mm. you're very uh, it's a very short time span until you're out with your coffee back on the street. But imagine uh, having a coffee shop where uh, you you do not yourself decide how many types of coffee you'd like to serve, but rather there are 10,000 different types of coffees that you'd have to serve. And uh, before the customer enters the, the shop, uh, you have no idea what kind of coffee you'd want to serve. Sometimes, mm -hmm. rarely, the customer knows uh, what kind of coffee they want, but mo most often they don't. So first you have to figure out which coffee is right for this person. And then in addition, uh, among these customers, there are a uh, thousand different coffee allergies that you have to take into account that could have very uh, <laughs> very boring consequences for, for the customers if you serve them the wrong um, coffee. So the it's very important to get it right in a sense. What would happen is that you'd need a lot of machinery and a lot of different coffee uh, producing machinery that are not used all the time or uh, that you, or you, you, you need to have them on sort of standby, but you never know when you'd use them. So even if this was sort of a private uh, coffee shop driven by, by profit, it would be highly ineffective. And it turns out that for, for certain conditions, if it's very clear what we're doing, for example, if we're replacing the hip uh, and you're doing sort of surgery uh, on a regular basis, then, the, then it could be the process could be highly uh, managed in a highly effective way. But uh, if you're not doing that, then it's actually not more efficient to have uh, a private structure of the of the uh, of the care. So, uh, for example, in the in the states, the healthcare is uh, both uh, privately funded and privately sort of performed, and they spend much more uh, of their GDP in total on healthcare, and they mm -hmm. have worse outcome than we do in Sweden. So, it's due to the it's really the complexity causing this sort of. Uh, a problem. It's not the sort of private-public uh, divide. Mm. Uh, right. So we, we've spoken. About, so your 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 research at SSC is is about ignoring organizational um, on an on an organizational level. You know, ignoring information. So what are your data sets? Where are you conducting your experiments? And have you learned anything from it in terms of like preventative care and stuff like that? Mm. Um, we're just starting out. So what we're doing now is to try to to assess the uh, the mechanisms. And when you're assessing mechanisms in, in organizations, the, uh, if, you're, if it's well studied, you could do uh, surveys and uh, uh, sort of collect quantitative data. But if it's not well studied, and if you don't know what, you'd, uh, what you're gonna find, it's actually better to uh, ask people about what they're doing and maybe observe how people are working and then try to think critical and and from that, uh, defer how what could be the the mechanisms of of ignoring. So currently, our data sets are uh, interviews with mm -hmm. 
uh, with actors in in these organizations. And this is, of course, very very difficult to. Um, it's very difficult to pinpoint the ignoring because it's also shameful to say that I'm uh, a comfortable person thinking about Netflix uh, um, on when I should be doing my work. So I uh, maybe they are not, but but the sort of it's uh, no one would ever say, oh, this is all these are all the problems that I that I ignore. Right. Uh, because they they assume maybe they have the sort of bottom up interpretation that you were talking about that is something wrong with them and even if we're not having that approach it's very difficult to get them to speak freely about this so it had to do so what we have to do is a lot of inferring and uh, uh, assessing of a lot of of uh, interview interviews and interview data and then try mm-hmm. to ag- aggregate it this is um um difficult and of course prone to my sort of biases and my preconceived ideas about how they are ignoring and what they're ignoring which is of course however the same if you're doing a survey or if you're looking at registry data the way you treat the data is very prone to to your own bias is there any special special techniques that you apply in your interviews or could you mention a bit about that Mm -hmm. yeah so the uh it's in a sense it's similar to interviewing uh, someone about uh, their um, uh, medical history or or their mm-hmm. uh, symptoms at the clinical ward, because if you ask if you ask very direct questions, uh, you're very very likely to affect the answers. So uh, even if you're looking for something specific, you'd want the specific answer to confirm an hypothesis. You have to ask uh, you have to ask the question in a way that does not reveal your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, to for the answer to be reliable, um, because if I'm if I'm asking you uh, have you eaten lunch uh, today, uh, it's much more likely that you'd uh, feel pressured to say yes, I've eaten lunch. If you feel like that's my expectation, but if I ask what have you been doing today, and you say I've eaten lunch, uh, the data is much more robust in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the simple idea of clarifying. So whenever there is any uh, possibility of misunderstanding uh, the person to ask for clarification, is this what you mean? Do you mean, could you, would you summarize, is it possible to summarize it like this? Or would you agree if I say that this is what you mean? Right. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, just one more thing. Finally, uh, to be sort of accepting of any kind of uh behavior so it turns out that the people will tell us that they have been cheating with the data or manipulated the data and of course you need to um give them the uh, sort of room to speak about it without judging the or assigning any value to to their behavior in order to get the data mm. right so i i guess in your career as an organizational researcher you will you will have or, or come to a lot of insights about this area. And I have spoken to a lot of researchers from uh, Karolinska where you studied, and I've spoken to a lot of researchers from KDH and Imperial and everywhere. And all of them mentioned this problem, and that is that it's hard to implement the insights that you get on mm. in the public sector or wh- wherever you want to implement it. It's hard to get people to actually implement it. So how do you, and, uh, and your research is conducted at the Stockholm School of Economics, and that's kind of known for being good at those kind of 
aspects of research as far as I've understood. So is, are there any, any things that you, you have learned about, about the implementation of the insights? Yeah, I think that uh, this is uh, maybe the most under-researched area of the compared to how much trouble it causes. So we we do uh, research a lot of new treatments, and we have a little bit of research on implementation and how to perform implementation in a good sense, but but not at all in proportion to how much sort of indirect suffering it causes to to patients and and uh, also to personnel in healthcare if that's the target of the intervention uh, i think that there's so there certainly are structures uh, or methods to make for a more efficient implementation uh, but the uh, but healthcare is also more difficult as an area of implementation because the sense of professionalism is very strong so people are uh, sort of their role or their work is based around them having an expert uh, role or the being very knowledgeable about the subject and of course that's that's a true assessment because healthcare is um, they are sort of despite the complexity uh, most of the people working in, in, uh, in care and healthcare are very knowledgeable uh, about that. So, but this also makes it more difficult to suggest new things because the uh, sort of, uh, if, you're, if you're very good at what you do, you are also, uh, it's harder for, for your behavior to adjust and change with new evidence. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so last question then. How vulnerable, uh, vulnerable do you think that the Swedish healthcare system is when it comes to foreign integrity violations and political manipulation? We've spoken about data collection before, and that could be that could be something that is vulnerable. So, do you think that we have anything strong to hold on to, organizationally speaking, if mm. the winds get stronger? I think it's impossible to protect society entirely from uh, foreign manipulation or a manipulation of uh, um, ill uh, sort of uh, actors from within Sweden that are not on our side uh, or that does not want uh, the best for everyone living in Sweden um, but and I think there are there are a couple of sort of nice gimmicks in the Swedish system. For example, we have these, as we're talking about the quality registries that uh, sort of in a structured way saves data about uh, health conditions. They are distributed in a sense that there are many different small registries. So they cannot easily be sort of linked into one big giant database. And of course, this is a pain in the ass when you're doing research because you have to do the linking manually for every separate research project. But in the event of a foreign actor uh, taking over the control of the registries or or uh, uh, a government that would want to use uh, these registries for uh, in order to categorize people uh, they, they it's sort of a protection that they are uh, don't have that friendly of a user interface uh, when when sort of germany uh, during the in the in the 40s when when germany entered uh finland they had the registry of uh, 
uh, everyone who had the radio and it was used as a radio licensing sort of to pay the to know how uh, who needed to pay the radio license so uh, it was very easy for for the german forces to just go into the uh, homes and get all the radios so people couldn't communicate any longer and this is sort of the danger of of having too well structured data Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to balance that risk against the benefit of having well-structured data when you're in, in at peacetime uh, or a government that wants the, the best for us. Um, mm, yeah, but then I, yeah, but I think I think it's uh, despite this, it's impossible sort of to be entirely uh, protected from this kind of shift in in um, foreign intervention or or um, interventions from from new governments but uh, yeah so maybe civil resistance will have a place uh, uh, in terms of the uh, making it more difficult for rulers to to um, have a destructive impact but the sort of research on ignoring and also the um, the lack of initiative uh, indicates that most people are, and this is also, of course, what happened in Germany. Most people are are uh, comfortable in uh, not um, acting on the acting against the current system, or that are easily easily swayed by any current political winds. Right. So just a last follow-up remark on that. Mm. You So it seems like you said that data sets shouldn't be too clear. For that, it seems like it's not always good to to know too much. And your whole research is based on, you know, information ignoring. So do you think that information ignoring can be good sometimes? That's a, that's a very good point. So so we have thought about this in the sense that um, good, in, good ignoring is is um, uh, any ignoring of irrelevant data but then of course if if the if the goal of an organization is not a goal that uh, benefits society or humanity then it's it's great if they ignore uh, mm. yeah that's a good point right and that turns into you know how should you know what what to ignore and yeah all of those questions mm. but that's for a later time thank you david for for speaking to me thanks for having me it's been a pleasure